I'd like you, please, to open your Bible in 2 Peter and the chapter 1. Peter was now an old man. The prophetic words of the risen Savior, spoken on the shores of Galilee, were soon to find their fulfillment. You'll read of that in John 21. Those words clearly indicated that Peter would die a martyr's death. Just underline there in verse 14, with what undisturbed calmness and unshakable confidence Peter speaks of this. Such is the peace that the gospel of Christ gives to the heart. Oh, do you know that peace? Here Peter informs us in his last words to us in a most interesting and instructive manner what is the paramount concern that he has for the saints to whom he was writing and, of course, to us in our own day and generation. And just to sum it up like this, it was the truth concerning this divine volume and especially there, verses 19 through 21. And that just underscores how vital is the doctrine of Holy Scripture. But as I have indicated, there are many lessons here. I want to draw your attention to one what we might well describe as a seeming paradox. And you do find them in the Bible. They're interesting. Read, seeing him who is invisible. That's a paradox. Well, we have a seeming paradox here. Notice now carefully in verse 12, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Note it. Though ye know them, and be established in this present truth. And so, like Peter, I firmly believe the vast majority present here today, if not all, believe this book to be the very word of God. And Peter was assured of that when he wrote to those saints. And yet you'll notice the concern that he expresses again in the verse 13. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. It's one of Peter's favorite words. And then again you'll notice when you come down to the verse 15 that he is saying the very same thing. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease. Underline that. To have these things always in remembrance. It's a seeming paradox. But you see, Peter knew that the truth not actively kept in memory by us can cease to influence us as it should. 
Searching questions arise from that. Are we living daily in the present, ex- present experience of the quickening and sanctifying power of this book that we profess to believe is God's book? Are we being brought increasingly in every area of our life to a greater compliance and conformity to the word of God? That's what Peter's concerned about. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find that's the very thing that Paul was equally concerned about writing to the saints at Corinth. And hence you'll notice Peter's great exhortation there in verse 19, right in the heart of the verse. I have it underlined in double red in my Bible. You'll notice what what Peter says. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. What a contrast. There is between those words of the supposedly first pope and all those who are pleased to call themselves his successors. Far from charging Christians to take heed to the Bible, Rome burned those who dared to translate the Bible into the common people's own language. Persecuted unto death those who would seek to circulate it and indeed those who would dare to read it for themselves. You know, for centuries, the Bible was placed in Rome's index of forbidden books. In the 18th century, Pope Pius IX He was the author of the decree of papal infallibility. He denounced, and I quote, those cunning and infamous societies which call themselves Bible societies. Now the Council of Trent, of course, is still the doctrinal standards of the Romish church and they assert that allowing the people to read the Bible would do more evil than good. You see, Rome contends that she alone is the only authorized, infallible, and therefore final and safe interpreter of Scripture. Now, follow this. Well, if such was the case, surely this is the place where plainly would be spelt out by Peter And yet there's not a hint of any such thing. Indeed, the very opposite. Peter exhorts the saints of God to do well, to do good, and to take heed each for himself to this book. This book that shines as a light in a dark place. I want to draw your attention particularly this morning to verses 20 and 21. It would be good just to read them again, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, 
the holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see here, as Paul does in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul and Peter set before us that primary and that fatal truth of the divine origin of this book. You'll notice that Peter says there at the beginning of the first 20, knowing this first, and how plainly and powerfully Peter opens this up to us, the divine origin of our Bible. Now that that's in few here is very clear in verse 20, even from the verb there, that no prophecy of the Scripture is, because that is a present tense verb, meaning coming into being or arising. So even the verb itself indicates to us that that's what's in view. It's the divine origin of the Scriptures. And then, of course, you come in the first 20 to those controverted words, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. The adjective private occurs 113 times in the New Testament. And it basically means one's own. Titus 1 and 2, a prophet of their own. Hebrews 13 and 12, concerning the Lord Jesus, his own blood. Same word rendered here by the word private. Now, of course, Rome fastens on these words, asserting that they teach that the believer cannot possibly and personally seek to understand and interpret the Scriptures. They, they must leave that to Mother Church. Again, strange how Peter in one breath exhorts believers to take heed to the Scriptures and then in the next breath asserts that they personally cannot possibly understand those same scriptures. Even though he asserts that they're shining as a light in a dark place. As a light. That's a strange description. If the scriptures are so obscure and impossible to study and understand... Let me say to you, this is what Rome is expert at, resting the Scriptures, resting the Scriptures. It brings us to the heart of the historical clash and controversy between Romanism and Protestantism, and that's the right of private judgment that every Christian can obey the words of Isaiah. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read it. Are the words of our blessed Savior in John chapter 5. Search the Scriptures. And that's a strong word. Search the Scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. 
So the question is, how do you understand the words of verse 20? Well, the answer is always by noting carefully the context in which it is found. And for young people, how vital that is. When you're reading your Bible, if there's some aspect of Scripture that you want to study, it's so important to study the context in which it is found. We must not interpret it so as to make a nonsense out of Peter's injunction to take heed to it, which, as I've pointed out, is the very thing Scripture commands us to do again and again. And, of course, in particular, we must understand those words of verse 20 in the light of verse 21. Because you'll notice they're evidently joined. You see, as I've emphasized moments ago, these words concern the origin of Scripture. And when we come to verse 20, it concerns the prophet himself. He's in view. What we're reading there is simply this. No prophecy of Scripture has its origin in the prophet himself. That's vital. It did not arise. Remember I mentioned the verb. It did not come into being in his own mind. His own understanding. His own insight. His own perception of things. John Calvin put it well when he said they did not blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgments. Thomas Adam the Puritan said it was not a vision of their own heads, but they speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I'm not turning this up and I'm keeping an eye to my time. Indeed, so much is that the case, and we will read these words tonight. Peter tells us in this first letter that the prophets themselves did not always understand those things that they gave utterance to, and hence they went about searching, seeking to understand those things. But of course, they would have understood them if they were the product of their own understanding the product of their own thoughts. When you notice the word there, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation that didn't arise in the prophets themselves, for the prophecy came not in old time, underline it, I'm not even dealing with it, by the will of man, but. That's a fatal word. Some wonderful buts in the Bible. Old Pastor Willie Mullen did a series on the wonderful buts in the Bible. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Salvation is found only in Christ. This is a wonderful but. It's marking a strong contrast. And how plainly and clearly Peter asserts the sovereign and powerful agency of the Holy Spirit here. But holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's the divine origin of the Scriptures. 
And just to refer back to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they were given by inspiration of God. This is a God breathed volume. It's the product of the creative breath of Almighty God. It is this that makes the Bible absolutely unique. And there's no other book like it. How important that is to underline today. When so many heathen religions are entrenched in our society, Bible is absolutely unique, and there's no other book in the world like it. It's a God-breathed volume. This is the mystery and miracle of inspiration. See, I want you to notice in verse 21, the verb moved. Let me say to young people, indeed to all of us, especially young people, it's always a great thing in a Christian home where boys and girls are growing up and becoming teenagers to have in that home at least a young's or a strong's concordance. Because if a young person really wants to get to grips with the Bible and they want to understand Bible words, and really get to the depth of meaning in those words, they can use those concordances and trace those words as they're variously translated in the Bible. And when they see that fullness of meaning, oh, then you'll begin to understand why I spoke in this context about the sovereign and powerful agency of the Holy Spirit. So keep your finger there for a moment and turn over to Acts chapter 27. And of course, with a Young's or a Strong's concordance so easily, you could turn up the place. And Acts 27 is one of the most dramatic chapters in the Bible. It's a chapter of a shipwreck. It's a chapter of a most unusual storm. It's the chapter of the tempest. It's the chapter of the most furious wind. And you know the little history. And how Paul was in this vessel. Caught in this storm. God gave them all that were in that vessel. You know the history. But when you come to this history, of course, you read about the alarm of the sailors and their fearfulness, and all that they went about in order that they might save themselves. The things that they did, putting the cargo overboard. That's the context. And look at verse 17. When they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship because a storm was breaking the ship up. Imagine that. The creaking planks. And every now and again, maybe that sharp noise split and all around is a furious ocean it's a dramatic scene isn't it and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands they strike steel and so were driven can you picture that in your mind's eye they were letting the vessel now go before the wind 
wherever that wind was going to take them. They had done all they could to secure the vessel that it wouldn't break up and toss them all into the ocean, and they just let it go. And whatever seals they had available were filled with the wind and the vessels driving. Driven. Same Greek word found over in Second Peter chapter 1 that holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's why I chose my words. The sovereign and powerful agency of the Holy Spirit. And yet, of course, it's important, and young people follow with me. Those prophets were not like those inanimate ships. And you see, it's in this lies the miracle and the mystery of inspirations. The prophets, as has been well said, were treated as living men. Not lifeless tools. Treated as living men. Not lifeless tools. And thus, you see, when you begin to read your Bible, well, you can immediately discern the different personal and social condition of the pen men of this book. You go to Amos, all that agricultural imagery. He was a farmer. He was a herdsman. Isn't that exactly what you would expect? And you turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. And how different the nobility of language and all of that rich poetic style of the princely Isaiah who frequented the royal court. Again, you can see the clear, diverse personalities and mental peculiarities of the various penmen of the Bible. Who could fail to recognize the unique style of the Apostle John? His style, it's just there, plain to see. But who could fail to recognize the mighty mind of Paul? His tremendous reasoning power. The logic that is seen as he goes through that book of Romans expounding the gospel of God. You see, young people, that's the mystery and the miracle of divine inspiration. That's why this book is unique. It's God's book. Given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God breathed. So I'm going to give you what I believe is the best illustration of that. Now, I love classical music. Let's say that I was in a home and there was a very talented musician there. The musician favored the flute, like James Galway. And I would say, well, well, do you know that piece of music? Oh, he says, I know that well. And he begins to play it on the flute. I enjoy it. And then I have discovered, of course, he, he plays a trumpet. And so I said to him, I, I've never heard that. Could you play it on the trumpet? And so 
He accommodates me, lifts the trumpet, plays the same piece of music. It's easily recognized as the same piece of music created by the same breath. But who would fail to notice how the music has taken on those distinct and different nuances of the various instruments? That's the miracle. That's the mystery of divine inspiration. These men became living tools controlled by the same divine breath so that we can ascertain their own particular individuality. But what they gave us is the word of the living God. There's no book like the Bible. Now can you see how powerful the argument of Peter is here? It couldn't be stronger. Here's the reason why we do well to take heed to the scriptures of truth. They are of divine origin. They're the very words of the living God. Dean Bergen, the great defender of the underlying text of our authorized version, made perhaps the greatest statement of all that I have ever come across. The Bible is none other than the voice of him that sitteth on the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every verse of it, every syllable of it, every letter of it, the direct utterance of the Most High. And you know that means three simple things. We'll come back to this passage tonight, of course. It certainly means divine authority. It also means complete infallibility because it's God's book and absolute sufficiency. And of course, it's in charismatic circles that that particularly is attacked. This book's complete. It's not half finished. And Ephesians 2 establishes that beyond any shadow of a doubt. So I come to close this morning with some statements. First of all, how thankful we ought to be to have it in our own hand, in our own language. Do we truly treasure it? When was the last time with fervency of spirit you thank God for the Bible in your hand? Do we study it prayerfully and carefully, ever desiring of ascertaining the mind of God in all things? And of course, that is going to be taking place in this house this week. As God's servant, they handle these various issues. They will do so in the light of God's truth. Do we handle it? And love it reverently like the Thessalonians. We receive it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. How important it is that we receive it as the word of God. Mary McShane, so often quoted, of course, made this statement in his day. Few tremble at the word of God, 
Few in reading it hear the voice of Jehovah, which is full of majesty. What does God Almighty say? In a most amazing context, so I will read the context. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things have mine hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Undoubtedly, the first that inspired Murray McShane's statement. I'm getting old, and I'm feeling it. I was just noticing I can't read the hymn off that screen. So I have trouble distinguishing faces when I look down. Of course, if there was a host of ministers here, that would be a good thing. I wouldn't see them. But the years are going by. I don't know how much longer I'll stand in a pulpit or be able to minister. But I want to say to you young people, if you want to go on with God and go through with God, if you want to serve the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to give yourself to that book. You've got to make the time to switch off the games, the electronic devices, the messages, and all the rest of it, and get on your knees and read this book and get to grips with the Bible. You see, when I was converted, I heard a Bible preacher for the first time, Pastor Willie Mullen, and I got so excited when he did tracing the tribes in Genesis down there in Bangor. And I started to run to meetings here, there, and yonder. The Reverend William Beatty's brother, Charlie, took me aside. And he said, listen, Michael. He said, you have to faithfully support the services in your own church on the Ravenhill Road. Don't be running to meetings here and there and yonder. Make time, get on your knees, and begin to read and study the Bible for yourself. And God gave me grace to do that. I can name some of the books that I first used in studying through the scriptures on my knees and how God indeed broke my heart, reading and studying one particular book. But I look back and I say, apart from that advice, I don't believe I'd be in the ministry. If you really mean business with God, don't neglect God's book. Love it, treasure it, and spend time in it. I trust the Lord will bless the ministry of his word today to every heart. We will be completing the study this evening, and indeed we'll be looking at it in one sense on a national level, but we're going to sing 186. It's a short little hymn. One hundred.